Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 220. My name is Terry Frost and this time we're going with a couple of favourites, one of which I'm a bit surprised I haven't previously done on the podcast. The first one is from 1940 and it is the classic The Mark of Zorro starring Tyrone Power, Basil Rathbone and Linda Darnell. Then we move on to one of my favourite musicals of all time, Kiss Me Kate, starring Howard Keel, Catherine Grayson and... Ken and Wind with James Whitmore, who are the, still the movie. So sit back, I'll get the contact deets out of the way, and uh, we'll start talking about swashbuckling and uh, spanking. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a fortnightly podcast of movie appreciation. There's only one rule, and that is the movies have to be more than 20 years old, and I have to like them. I'm going to be looking at the history of the films, the social context in which the films were made, and relate that to the way movies are now. Feedback is very important, so you can leave reviews on iTunes. You can also go to feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com and drop an email or a voicemail by MP3. Or you can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. Now, please be aware that this podcast may contain adult language. So if you don't want to have to explain it to your kids, don't listen to it when the kids are around. Unless you have incredibly hip children. So, how has everybody been? I've been incredibly sedentary since we last spoke. Not doing very much at all. Sally and I did do uh, one trip. Uh, not a very long one, but we did a trip uh, during the week. We took, we went around, um, you might understand, Melbourne's at the top of a bay called Port Phillip Bay. And there are two arms to the bay, two peninsulas that don't meet in, in the middle. So what we did was we went down to Queenscliff on the western side of the bay, down at the bottom, and took the ferry across to Sorrento on the eastern peninsula. Look it up in Google Maps. You'll understand what I mean if you don't already. So we did that, and then we went over to a place called the Tyab Packing House, which is an enormous second-hand market. They have everything. They have so many movie day bills that I want that I could spend literally $100,000 and still not get everything I want. They really have the world's best collection of them that I've ever seen. The only other person I know who may have a better collection is a guy called John Reed, who lives in New South Wales and from whom I occasionally buy day bill movie posters. But uh, we went through that and picked. I picked up some movies. I didn't pick up any day bill posters, but I did pick up some movies there, uh, some classic British films, things like a, a proper legal copy of A Matter of Life and Death, for instance, and a few other things like that. So th- there were a bunch of things that I picked up there. We had a good time, had a bit of lunch there, and then uh, came back around the base. So basically we circumnavigated Port Phillip Bay and in the middle of it bought a lot of good stuff. But apart from that, it was a very lazy week for me, which is kind of nice, but I really have to get off my ass and do more things. I've got a half-written script for another YouTube video, which I've got to complete and then record and then find images for. So we've got that going there. And um, I really want to kind of get ahead with the podcast. So what I may do is rope in some people to guest on there and we'll kind of shoot the shit about movies the way I always intended. So I'm going to put a shout out there. I know um, Dave Mack in Texas. I'm not sure how he's positioned at the moment as far as the floods are concerned, but at some stage I will get Dave Mack in to talk about some Westerns with me and a few other people that have got things. Uh, Friend of the podcast, Alex Pierce, is currently traveling around the world when she gets back. 
we're going to have a great time because we're going to be doing the Poseidon Adventure and the Towering Inferno in one podcast. Disaster movies galore. So that's going to be a lot of fun when it happens. And I want to get a couple of things organized as far as Martian Drive-In podcast is going as well. But apart from that, um, I have been cooking at home. I cooked up the best chili con carne that I've ever eaten, basically. Uh, We used the uh, pressure cooker, which was kind of cool, and put in all the spices, the kind of garlic, uh, the chili flakes, the garlic, the cumin, the whole lot, and made a massive pot of it, which lasted two meals. It was really great fun. And this time of year when it's not quite, I think it's spring, but uh, it's very windy and there are still cold days. It was really good to have a great big pot of chili there to guts down when uh, the mood took us. And that's one of the other things I wanted to do um, now that I'm not working is do more cooking. We've got into a bad habit of getting takeaway more often than we should. And I wanted to kind of hit that on the head and do some cooking, which is one of the reasons why I'm going to be recording part of this podcast now for me and then more of it later because um, I've got to actually cook dinner. So all that's good fun, and uh, it's, well, it goes along with me going to the gym, which I did this morning, by the way. I uh, did cardio, I did weights, I'm doing more weights and more reps of the weights, and um, that's working for me really, really well. The um, moves are decreasing, the waist is getting slowly slimmer, and... Uh, it's actually getting slightly easier and slightly less of a burden to go down there, do the gig, uh, put on the Bluetooth headphones and listen to podcasts while I exercise. Next week I'm going to be kind of busy because it's going to be my last chat with Rebecca McLaren on ABC Radio because she's going on leave. And uh, we're going to do Blade Runner to have a chat about that on the radio and I'm going to the blood bank on Tuesday so I'll fill the week up but I really want I've got to set myself some deadlines as far as the creative stuff's concerned and what I will do is I'll set a deadline for next Friday to get at least the script completed for my next YouTube video which is going to be about good remakes and I'm going to be mentioning The Mark of Zorro one of the two films from today when I put out that YouTube video as well so, what have I been watching? Well, I binge-watched the third season of The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which I kind of enjoy. It's um, screwball comedy in the best sense of the word. So, I did that. Um, I watched the first three episodes of The Tick, the TV series based on Ben Edlund's comic. And it's um, I'm not sure whether I'm going to stick with it or not. It's still a bit hit and miss. But we, you know, I might give it a couple more episodes and just see where it goes. The other thing I watched is The Orville, the TV series Seth MacFarlane's done as a kind of homage to Star Trek. And the third episode of it blew me away because it's really good science fiction and talks about a whole bunch of important issues, which don't get much talked about, particularly on television, uh, to do with gender and identity and all sorts of things like that. I think it was done quite well. I think there's a couple of bits where they misstep but in general it's good solid science fiction in um the old classic sense of the word being about ideas and the impacts of ideas on people so i'm going to stick with that one because that third episode really nailed it for me uh the other thing i watched and nobody told me about this uh came out in 2011 and somebody should have hit me to this movie a lot sooner than sally did this week and that's The Cabin in the Woods, the um, 
the movie scripted by Josh Josh Whedon, Josh Whedon, sorry, Josh Joss Whedon, and I really fucked that up. Uh, about it's kind of a slasher film, but it's got two different la- two different layers underneath it being a slasher film. I'm not going to do any spoilers on it, but I kind of enjoyed it. It's very much in my wheelhouse when it comes to that kind of a movie, and so that was a lot of fun to see. And we uh, used that as a date night movie last night. So that's about all I've really been watching. I've been doing a lot of gaming, uh, been doing some reading, uh, just in general, fucking around for the most part. Uh, As I said, I've really got to uh, do more than that. And one of the other things I want to do this week is catch up with good friend of the podcast, Morris, from Love That Album podcast. We really got to do lunch one of the days that I'm in the city. So anyway, I'm going to take a break now. When we get back, we're going to do these in chronological order. And I'm going to talk about The Mark of Zorro, directed by Ruben Mamoulian and starring Tyrone Power, Linda Darnell and Basil Rathbone. The Mark of Zorro is a 1940 American black-and-white action swashbuckling film from 20th Century Fox. Uh, it was directed by Ruben Mamoulian, who directed a few good films in his day, including the 1931 version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that had Frederick March and Miriam Hopkins in it. Uh, he directed Becky Sharp with Miriam Hopkins, Golden Boy, which was the breakout film for William Holden. And in 1957, he directed Silk Stockings with Fred Astaire and Sid Charisse in it which was a musical remake of the Ninochka. So he had a good career, and uh, he made another movie in 1941 with Tyrone Power and Linda Darnell as well called Blood and Sand, which was about bullfighting. But um, in 1940, we have The Mark of Zorro, which isn't the first version of Johnston McCulley's uh, book, The Curse of Capistrano, which came out in the 19-teens and was first made into a movie in 1920 starring Douglas Fairbanks Sr., uh, a silent film, of course, because it was 1920. And so a, a sound remake was made. Uh, it came out a year after 
a very successful swashbuckling film, which also starred Basil Rathbone, and that was The Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland. So uh, there's very similar roles in this one for two of the actors, one of whom, of course, is Basil Rathbone playing the baddie with a sword, and the other is an actor called Eugene Pallet or Palette, who uh, had, was in silent films. In fact, he was in a version of The Three Musketeers in the silent era playing uh, Porthos, I think, or Athos, Porthos, Aramis, and D'Artagnan. So it would have been Porthos he was playing because he was a short, round kind of guy. Uh, Eugene Pallet's kind of famous because in 1946 he decided that the world was going to be blown up by atomic bombs and he was very right-wing and conservative. So Eugene Pallet decided he was going to... Uh, fortify himself and get away from it all and so he bought a, a really big 14 square kilometer ranch in oregon as a hideaway from nuclear warfare uh he stayed there for about two years he, he had cattle there his own canning plant a lumber mill uh, an enormous supply of food amongst other things and when it didn't the nuclear war didn't happen two years later he came back to hollywood uh he died in 1954 of throat cancer in los angeles and uh he was very much, very, really, really conservative, really, really right wing. But he was a good character actor, playing in both the Adventures of Robin Hood, where he played Friar Tuck, and in this one where he pays uh, the priest confessor, Friar Felipe, to Tyrone Powers' Don Diego del Vega. He he played portly men of the cloth who kicked ass and, and bashed people on the head. According to IMDb, there have been forty five different iterations of Zorro in the years since um, Johnston McCulley's story came out. Uh, we, of course, know the one with Antonio Banderas and Catherine Zeta-Jones playing a Welsh-Spanish person. But uh, the basic story hasn't really changed in all of that time. Uh, you know, Don Diego de la Vega, who's the son of a wealthy landowner in Los Angeles, or Los Angeles, as they call it in the movie, uh, is sent home from his military training, um, he's a military officer in Spain, and comes home and, does, and finds out that his father is no longer the alcalde of Los Angeles, and the corrupt um, Don Luis Quintero, played by J. Edward Bromberg, has become the alcalde, and he's treating the peons and the caballeros really badly, and so Diego decides he's got to do something about it, so immediately, as Diego, he decides he's going to play played very camp and very kind of dandified version of himself for to so that people underestimate him. Meanwhile, at night time, he dresses in black and puts on a mask and becomes Zorro and Robin Hood's the bad guys, basically. It's very much the same story as Robin Hood, but in a very much different setting and with different kind of cultural precepts. Of course, when Diego camps it up, He's very much dismissed by all and sundry. Uh, a little bit of homophobia happening there, maybe. Uh, though, of course, somebody pretending to be gay so that people misle- so it can mislead people may well be uh, something that's not politically correct in the 21st century. But at the time, it was really kind of accepted. And I think Tyrone Power does it very well. In his real life, there's a lot of suspicion that Tyrone Power may have been bisexual. So um, him playing things a little bit lavender becomes more acceptable if that is indeed the case. We're never really going to know for sure, but uh, the suspicions are very strong that he was um, kind of uh, 
anything that moves kind of guy. So we've got Linda Darnell in there, uh, an actress, actress who was good in a number of roles, had a very unfortunate life in a lot of ways. She was 17 when she played Lolita Cantera, the niece of Don Louise, and she's the love interest in the piece. Uh, and when she was about 41, she died in a house fire in Chicago uh, and in a really nasty kind of way. Her career was a bit on the outer. She was one of those people who was brought to the attention of that um, sexual harasser par excellence, Howard Hughes, and she had a um, few affairs. So I think she may have been sexually precocious because she did date a lot of men when she was at least technically underaged. But um, later on, she tried to get her life together, but unfortunately had this accident at a family home in Chicago uh, in the mid-1960s. So she was only 41 in the 1960s, so there you go. Uh, and then you got Basil Rathbone, born in South Africa, fencing champion. He was uh, on an Olympic team for fencing in the 1920s, and, of course, he played Sherlock Holmes to great acclaim in the 1940s as well. Uh, his career towards the end had some weird things in it, like Planet of Blood and um, other things like that. Like a lot of other uh, actors beyond a certain age, he really uh, had trouble finding roles. But uh, in most people's account, he was well regarded. And he had that beautiful hawkish profile, which made him perfect in... Um, the villain roles, and of course the fact that he could sword fight like a son of a bitch never hurt at all. The uh, other people in the film, uh, there's, a, there's a couple of connections with Batman in this movie, which is kind of interesting. The first one, and uh, I'll go to the one that's a little bit obscure, but I like. The first one is that in Batman mythology or in Batman lore, when um, Bruce Wayne's parents are killed, They've just taken him to see the Mark of Zorro, this version of the Mark of Zorro, at the cinema. It must have been an encore cinema in some of the iterations of Batman. And so the um, canon of Batman is that uh, was Thomas and Martha Wayne took Bruce Wayne as a child to see the Mark of Zorro, and on the way home they took a shortcut through an alley and the parents were killed. Therefore, Bruce Wayne got an ID fixed in his head and became Batman. So um, that's one link between the Mark of Zorro in 1940 and Batman. The other one is that in the Spanish scenes at the start, one of his friends, one of um, Don Diego's friends, Rodrigo, and in 1949, Robert Lowry was the second person to play Bruce Wayne and Batman in the movie serial Batman and Robin. So there are a couple of links to this movie to Batman, which is kind of cool and interesting. Among the other things I like about the film is Alfred Newman's score for it. Now, I'm going to play about a minute and a bit of Alfred Newman's score for uh, The Mark of Zorro, which is kind of classic in this kind of thing, in the same way that the score for The Avengers of Robin Hood, which I think was Eric Wolfgang Korngold, uh, is a classic movie score, and 20th Century Fox really did a good job in both of these. So you tried to get gold out of the country, did you? If you ever again take one peso of mine, I'll cut your throat from ear to ear. I must please ask you to change the subject. His Excellency objects to talk of throat cutting. Quiet you, Popinjay. I've no reason for letting you live either. What a pleasant coincidence. I feel exactly the same way about you, Capitan. You wouldn't care to translate that feeling into action, would you? I might be tempted. If I had a weapon. 
What's your... Now, please, gentlemen. Now, this is going much too far. Only to serve you, Excellency. Huh. You have a champion, Luis. And what a champion. Now, gentlemen. Diego. Mr. I'll make it short and save you fatigue. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention the other person in this movie that I really like a lot, and that is the person who plays the aunt of Lolita. Inez Quintero is played by an actor called Gail Sondergaard, who was interesting for a couple of reasons, one of which is that she also um, starred with Basil Rathbone in a 1943 movie called The Spider-Woman, also known as Sherlock Holmes and the Spider-Woman. It's one of the Sherlock Holmes movies that Basil Rathbone did with Nigel Bruce. In fact, it's seven of 14. And she plays the villain in it, a kind of female Moriarty character. Gail Sondergaard is kind of vapid and silly, as Anis Quintero, who's a very kind of shallow woman, uh, with her husband, um, Don Luis, played by uh, J. Edward Bromberg. Interesting thing about Gail Sondergaard and J. Edward Bromberg is they were both nailed wrongly, in everyone's opinion, by the House Un-American Activities Committee and were blacklisted as actors. Uh, she moved on past that and uh, did a lot of stage work, as, in fact, a lot of actors did when Hollywood blacklisted them. But uh, she was a really fine actor. She could play light and silly. She could play malevolent. Uh, she really did uh, have a certain presence as an actor. Doesn't show necessarily as much in The Mark of Zorro as it does in some other films, particularly The Letter. But I like Gail Sondergaard and she flirts outrageously with Tyrone Power. She has a great time of it and kind of you know, really laps up the role and becomes quite an interesting um, secondary character in the film, which I kind of like. Now, Tyrone Power is great as uh, Don Diego slash Zorro. He's athletic, and um, this is in his prime when he was young. It's even before things like Nightmare Alley, where you see the darker side of his character, and then, of course, Witness for the Prosecution in 1959. But in this one, he's one of the best-looking guys in, in movie history, really. Um, not necessarily the best actor at times, but he does have a lot of fun playing the camp side of Don Diego and also you know, showing a good deal of menace when he and Basil Rathbone are going at it with the swords. There is, there is a little bit of doubling for Tyrone Power in this film as far as the sword play is concerned and, of course, the stunt work. But in general, he puts it across really well. There are some really nice stunts in this film too. Uh, there's a horse stunt where Zorro is galloping down through the town and chucks a really sharp right-hand turn on horseback. Uh, whoever did the horse stunt for that is fantastic because he's going full pelt, pulls the horse up, turns the horse and goes. And if you don't know, don't see it. Uh, it it's just part of the thing. But if you really come to stop to think about it, it is a fantastic piece of stunt work. And there are a couple of those in this film which really impressed me. The movie was made for about a million bucks at the time, which was a fairly large budget for a Hollywood film. But it um, was wildly successful and, of course, went on to push Tyrone Power's career ahead. 
Uh, he joined the army during the war, though, and that kind of stopped things for a few years. But then he was back into it in time for things like Nightmare Alley. Uh, the other weird thing about this film is that the version I got, I picked it up for a couple of bucks when I was in Sydney recently uh, on DVD, and I didn't know this, but it's a 2005 edition that I've got, which was put out by Legend Pictures or, or something like that, and the fuckers colorized it. They colorized it kind of in a very muted kind of color palette. Nonetheless, they colorized it, which pissed me off. I've got to find a copy of the non-colorized version of this film because I don't like colorization as a concept, and I think it's wrong to do it. But apart from that pissing me off, uh, the, the music's fantastic, the acting is good, the adventure moves along really well, and there are a lot of modern films that could learn from a movie like this. Uh, there are a few other versions of Zorro that I kind of like. There was a remake of this version of Zorro specifically done in the 1970s of, for television which was probably the second version of it I saw. The first version, of course, was the late 50s, early 1960s television Disney version of Zorro with Guy Williams in it. And I saw that one on TV a lot, and I liked it. In fact, when I was a kid at a masquerade party, I went dressed as Zorro. I was very unhappy when my plastic sword broke, which is crazily Freudian. Nonetheless, uh, it's the only time I've ever really dressed up Uh for a masquerade party and that one was great because i got the hat i got the sword i got the mask i got black clothes and it worked really well but anyway um the 19 i think it's 1974 just let me double check that the 1974 tv remake of this film yeah it was had a great cast at frank langella playing zorro and he does the camp stuff really well we've got gilbert Rowland playing his father don alejandro uh, we've got Larice, Louise Sorrell playing Inez in this one, Robert Middleton playing uh, Don Louise, Anne Archer playing the um, daughter, which they've renamed Teresa rather than um, Lolita because Lolita became a whole different thing after Nabokov's novel and Kubrick's movie came out. And playing Captain Esteban, you've got Ricardo Montalban. So the movie, the TV version of it's pretty damn good. I enjoyed that one. The other version is a movie called The Erotic Adventures of Zorro, which is a soft porn version of it that came out in 1972, which I saw in the cinema. It doesn't star anybody you know, and the sword fighting is kind of perfunctory, but there's a lot of um, attractive people getting their kid off in that one, and I saw it in the cinemas, in fact, because I was watching a lot of um, R-rated movies at that time, and one of the ones I saw was The Erotic Adventures of Zorro, which is also known as The Sexcapades of Don Diego. So it's one of those properties, obviously, that um, does have a whole bunch of different ways you can tell the story because it is basically Robin Hood. Nonetheless, I enjoyed this one a lot. Uh, I really love that uh, theme music by Alfred Newman, and it, it just worked for me. It was I'd seen, I've been kind of watching YouTube videos and nothing that really impressed me for a little while. And then suddenly I went back to The Mark of Zorro and I'm going to watch The um, Adventures of Robin Hood as a um, companion piece to it very soon. But uh, a good old-fashioned swashbuckler is what you need as a palate cleanser sometimes when the things you're watching, particularly live news, um, aren't really doing it for you. So... Yeah, I highly recommend this one. But try not to get the colorized version if you possibly can. 
Uh, there is, a, is not a version that's worth watching on YouTube, by the way. So fork out your pennies and kind of fill that gap in your collection and see if you can get a decent copy of The Mark of Zorro from 1940. So we're going to take a break now. When we get back, we're going to be talking about Shakespeare indirectly and Cole Porter directly with Kiss Me, Kate. Kiss Me Kate is one of my go-to cheer Terry up movies of all time. Uh, there are a few musicals in that category. Young Girls of Roachford, for instance. Uh, Kismet, another MGM musical starring Howard Keel. But Kiss Me Kate's probably the best one. There's not a song in there that doesn't cheer me up every time I see it. It really is the full package. Um, now, what, when I was being made by... MGM in 1953. It had just come off being a very, very successful stage production. And MGM wasn't sure that the star Howard Keel could really carry the movie. Unless he does. 
Uh, he had an interesting career on stage as well. In 1945, he was the understudy for John Reid in the musical Carousel, and he was given Oklahoma uh, to play Curly in Oklahoma. He was the first person to play that. While he was doing that, he pulled off an achievement that nobody else has ever done in the history of Broadway. In the same day, he ended up playing the role of Billy Bigelow in Carousel and Oklahoma's Curly in the same day. Nobody else in the history of Broadway has ever done that. I like Howard Keel in this one playing Petruchio and Fred Graham. Uh, it's just one of the best roles that he ever did, bar none. Even better than Jupiter's Darling, which is a bit of a joke if you've ever seen Jupiter's Darling. Uh, the story of the movie is pretty simple. Uh, Lily Vanessi, played by Catherine Grayson, and Fred Graham, played by Howard Keel, are a divorced couple. Cole Porter gets them together to do a musical version of William Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew, which they call in Kiss Me Kate. In this instance, and this is really cool from an Australian point of view, Cole Porter is played by Australian actor Ron Randell, who went on uh, to have a career in England and the United States, not a particularly successful one, uh, maybe because he was a little shorter than the average actor. And he also, from what I understand from my viewing of his life and career, had some problems with depression. Uh, and that kind of slowed down his career to a certain extent. Still a good character actor, and in this one he's kind of good, even though he looks nothing like Cole Porter looked uh, before or after the film was made. Cole Porter uh, made the music for this film, or you know, composed the music for this film, after he had a horse riding accident which crushed both of his legs, and he was in chronic pain for the rest of his life. Uh, in spite of that, he produced some of his best work while suffering excruciating pain, which is kind of interesting. And if you've seen The Lovely, the uh, movie with Kevin Klein in it, where he plays Cole Porter, you get a little bit of an idea. Uh, Cole Porter didn't look anything like Kevin Klein, or indeed Ron Randell. He looked a little more like a frog. But and in that sense, I don't mean a Frenchman. But uh, in this one, it kind of works because you accept that. Uh, so Cole's playing some of the music from the, mu uh, from the pl stage production for them. When Lois Lane turns up, now not Lois Lane as a Superman's girlfriend, wife, whatever, but a character played by Anne Miller, who's a chorus girl who Freddie is going to give a role in the production. And she does a version of It's Too Darn Hot while they're in Fred's apartment. Um, Lois is having a flirtation with Fred, which doesn't endear her at all to Lily. It's too darn hot. It's too darn hot. I'd like to suck with my baby tonight. Fill the cup with my baby tonight. Crazy man! I'd like to suck with my baby tonight. Refill the cup with my baby tonight. But I ain't up to my baby tonight because it's too darn hot. <laughs> it's too darn hot. Lois's boyfriend, Bill, played by Tommy Rawl, is an actor and dancer in uh, the production. Uh, the other people in there are. He signs Fred's name to an IOU with a guy called Mr. Hogan, who's uh, to whom he owns a gambling debt, owes a gambling debt, sorry. And Mr. Hogan sends two gangsters, Lippy and Slug, played by Kenan Wynn and James Whitmore, to collect the debt from Fred Graham. Meanwhile, the production starts, and during the, uh, the premiere performance of Kiss Me, Kate, 
lots of really uh, silly stuff ensues. The lives of the characters the actors are playing parallels the lives of the uh, staged. There's, there's a couple of different layers here. It's like Inception in a way. The um, parallels between the lives of Lily and Fred, a parallel between Catherine and Petruccio, Lois uh, as Bianca, who's being uh, courted by three men, Gremio, played by Bobby Van, uh, Lucentio, played by Tommy Rawl, and, of course, Hortensio, played by the great Bob Fosse, which gives us one of the best bits in the film. There's two favourite bits I have in this film. Uh, apart from all the rest, because it's tons, there are tons of good things to talk about in this film. But the best bit for me and the most groundbreaking as far as choreography is concerned wasn't Anne Miller tap dancing on Fred Graham's coffee table, but the bit where Hermes Pan, who was the choreographer for the movie, let Bob Fosse choreograph his own dance sequence with Carol Haney in From This Moment On. It was breakthrough stage and cinematic uh, choreography, and it was the start of what people came to know as Bob Fosse's style, the sliding on the floor, the um, kind of hunched-over way the dancers move. Uh, all of it was based on Fosse being a bit pigeon-chested, really. But uh, it's just watching that sequence, you can kind of see the magic of the guy. And there are a couple of other films that uh, that kind of highlight the talent of Bob Fosse as a dancer. The first one that comes to mind, of course, is Damn Yankees, where he does the choreography. But he also um, dances with his wife at the time, Gwen Verdon, in one small sequence. Uh, a couple of years later, Fosse did probably the best bit of dancing I saw him ever do on a film in a 1955 movie called My Sister Eileen, where he does a kind of combat dance in an alley with Tommy Rawl. And the two of them together are fantastic. It's energetic. It's very masculine dancing. But uh, that one, you've got to see to be believed. It's worth Googling and um, YouTubing that one. So if you type in, say, My Sister Eileen and Bob Fosse, you're going to see that dance sequence, which is amongst the best ever filmed as far as male dancers are concerned, with the possible exception of the Nicholas Brothers in Stormy Weather, which is, again, uh, a masculine kind of dance, but incredibly powerful uh, stuff. This movie, of course, being an MGM product of the 1950s, they did soften up a number of lyrics that Cole Porter wrote, most notably in Brush Up Your Shakespeare. Try to find the original version of uh, that the, that song uh, which Lippy and Slug do and James Whitmore and <laughs> Keenan Wynn didn't practice the dancing at all. They had a week with Hermes Pan to get the dancing right and they spent the whole week playing handball. And so their clumsiness and awkwardness in the dance sequences was kind of genuine. But uh, the lyrics for that were kind of cleaned up a little bit for the movies, this still being under the production code. And also in um, another of the songs, The Life That Leto Led, there's a bit of cleaning up in that. And also in We Open in Venice, they cut out a couple of references to um, Louis B. Mayer in that, amongst other things, and a couple of other bits and pieces, because Louis B. Mayer was running MGM at the time, so they didn't want to piss off the boss. Having said that, it works really well, and it's the version that I first saw. So I have seen on um, video a couple of other productions of it, which are great in their own way, and they're totally 
uh, have their own energy and a different energy than the movie. But the movie is pretty wonderful. And there's a whole bunch of pieces in the movie where actors and characters stare at the screen. And one of the reasons for this is it was originally filmed in 3D, but the 3D craze ebbed just as the movie came out. So it was only done in 3D in a number of cinemas. The Blu-ray version I've got, which is an American Blu-ray, has the 3D on it, but you need to have a 3D TV and all of those bits and pieces that go along with that and a 3D video player, um, which I don't have. So I've got the uh, disc and I've got the software, but I don't have the hardware to play it. If anybody in Melbourne has a 3D TV and wants to invite me around, it's got to have um, international zoning, of course. I'm more than happy to sit down with you and watch Kiss Me Kate anytime, anywhere in Melbourne. I mean, the movie's just basically a piece of froth. It's a confection. But I like the um, idea of paralleling the lives of actors with the lives of the characters they play. It's something that never gets old. Uh, it wasn't the only adaptation, of course, of Shakespeare as a musical. There was another thing called West Side Story. There have been adaptations of other um, Shakespeare plays done as musicals. There was The Boys from Syracuse, which Richard Rogers did, um, along with Larry Hart, and uh, that was an v- adaptation of The Comedy of Errors. Of course, you've got Kiss Me Kate there, West Side Story, Two Gentlemen of Verona was done as a musical in the 1970s. Return to the Forbidden Planet is a musical version of, of course, The Tempest via Forbidden Planet. The Lion King, it says here, is a version of Hamlet, though I'll, I'll be honest about this, I haven't seen The Lion King because I don't like the fact that it ripped off one of my favourite childhood animes, Kimber the White Lion, so fuck Disney and fuck that. Uh, All Shook Up, there's a musical called All Shook Up, which is a version of Twelfth Night. There's one called Lone Star Love, which is a version of The Merry Wives of Windsor. It was also called The Merry Wives of Windsor, Texas. There was Love's Labour's Lost, done as a musical. Uh, These Paper Bullets is another adaptation, a version of Much Ado About Nothing, which is one of my favourite Shakespeare plays. There was also something called The Donkey Show, which was a version of Midsummer Night's Dream done in disco. So there are a bunch of other adaptations there, probably none except for West Side Story as successful as Kiss Me Kate, but they're all in there and they're all kind of cool and uh, it shows, and of course there was music in Shakespeare too, there were little songs and ditties done in um, Shakespeare's original text, which um, is something that people don't always remember. Anyway, the th- the 3D um, does make itself apparent, and we see in the fact that uh, people throw bananas and smoke bombs and all sorts of things at the screen, you see the, where the 3D was going to occur. And it kind of works even in the 2D and it also engages us in a weird kind of way because when you see Howard Keel or Catherine Grayson or a couple of other people directly speaking to and staring at the screen, it makes that connection between you and uh, the people on the screen just a little bit stronger because it's a musical. You're kind of generally disposed to cutting it some slack because of that and to enjoy yourself and where the actor's directly talk to you it, it just makes that connection that little bit stronger which is kind of fun and there's also something for fetishes in there too i'm saying that because sally and i went and sold some of her jewelry at a fetish exhibition a couple of weeks ago and um yeah there's a bit of spanking in there as well where uh petruccio spanks Catherine. uh in fact fred spanking lily 
and uh, so if you're a little bit kinky and into that sort of thing, it was there. One of the things they did, which kind of pissed off Howard Keel, was a wooden um, bum shape was put underneath Catherine Grayson's dress. So when Howard Keel was smacking her in the ass during the spanking scene, he hurt his hand. So if there's any kind of, if you have any problems with that kind of behaviour, take heart in the fact that Howard Keel hurt his hand on a wooden bum. But for those of you who are into that sort of thing, go for it. Who am I to say you can't find your enjoyment in a movie in your own particular way? As long, of course, as your kink is consensual. One of the other unusual things about Kiss Me Kate and the way it was adapted from the stage to the screen is that the originally Too Darn Hot wasn't sung by uh, Lois Lane, the Ann Miller character. It was sung by Paul Fred's dresser, who was an African-American. So that kind of gives it a whole new complexion. I'd love to see a version of it where Too Darn Hot is sung by an African-American actor. That would be kind of cool to check that one out. And there are some people that say that the original stage show was based actually on backstage bickering from uh, Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontaine, were a very famous married couple on the stage in Broadway. And they did a version of Taming Through in 1935 and spent the entire production bickering with each other and kind of influencing the uh, production in a negative way because of that. And uh, Bella Spiewak, who wrote the original book for Kiss Me Kate, would well have been aware of that particular um, event in stage history. So uh, be careful what you do if you've got any kind of profile at all. It may end up being in a play with music by Cole Porter and be immortalised way beyond the original contretemps. But just to finalise on Kiss Me Kate, I like it a lot. Uh, I'm a big fan of the MGM musicals, as you know. There were some pretty piss-weak ones toward the end there. And they eventually got to the stage of being way too long and with way too many busy bits in them, particularly in the um, 1960s. But in the heyday, which this definitely is 1953, MGM musicals were, there was nothing better on the screen as far as that particular genre of work is concerned. And they did give give us adaptations of famous uh, stage productions, which otherwise we wouldn't be able to see. And even if we did, we'd be looking at them through a proscenium arch, so they wouldn't have been anywhere near as vivid, anywhere near as interesting as the adaptations that we ended up with, thanks to the major Hollywood studios. So it looks like this episode is going to be a little bit of a shorter one than usual, so I apologise for that. Next time around, I want to get somebody on board to have a chat with about a couple of movies. I've got some possibilities, but uh, we'll leave that to see where it ends up. But uh, anyway, um, thank you again for listening. Thank you to, of course, the wonderful and irrepressible Patreon supporters. And also, I've got to do a shout-out to uh, Sebastian DeBell, who let me know that there are a couple of episodes that aren't showing up on the Podbean feed. I've tried to locate them. I've located a couple of them. But uh, I've been doing this for 10 years now, and sometimes the backups fail. So there are a couple of missing episodes. I know episode 100 is missing. If anyone's got a copy of Paleo Cinema 100 saved somewhere, let me know because I really need a copy of it. Uh, But anyway, just on that note, I'll leave you guys to get on with the rest of your day. Uh, Thank you for listening. Thanks again to the Patreon supporters. I will play another tune from Kiss Me Kate 
at the end of the podcast after the Patreon credits. So anyway, um, take care of yourselves. Watch good movies, watch bad movies. Really, uh, if you're in Australia and you're LGBTIQA, asexual as well, uh, look after yourselves at the moment. They've got this horrible um, informal and not binding um, survey that the government's put out on uh, marriage equality and it's having a negative effect on a lot of people. There's um, a lot of bad blood in this community because of this and um, a lot of people are having a rough time with it. So if you are queer at all, please look after yourselves at the moment. Uh, It is a hard time, but we'll get through this. Reach out to people if you need to. And there are a number of resources out there to help you out with that. So anyway, take care. And I'll be back very soon with another podcast. Thank you to the two Kerrys. And here again is the credit sequence for Paleo Cinema Podcast. Just as a little thank you to the Patreon supporters. And also thank you to the two Sallys. Uh, Sally K has um, become a Patreon supporter. And of course to my wife Sally who puts up with me while I do this stuff. Uh, her contribution to the podcast can never be overestimated. Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers. And here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. We have Tom, our focus puller, Sarah, our special effects technician, Ian, our caterer, Grant, our technicolor consultant, Claire, our script doctor, Gary, our prop master, Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress, Tansy, the foley artist, Alyssa, the location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, our donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, Steve, our script doctor, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Carrie, our second script doctor, Richard, our set photographer, and our extras, Kathleen, Mark, and David. And let's not forget Steve Sullivan, our director of Monster Effects, and Richard C., our transportation co-captain. So thank you very much to all the subscribers, and you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema. Today in society, go for classical poetry. So to win their hearts, one must quote with ease. Aeschylus and Euripides. One must know Homer and bleed me, Paul. Sophocles, also Sappho. Unless you know Shelley and Keats and Pope. Dainty Debbies will call you a dope. But the poet of them all, who will start him simply raven, is the poet people call the part of Stratford on Avon. Brush up your Shakespeare, start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare, 
and the women you will wow. Just declaim a few lines from Otella, and they'll think you're a hell of a fella. If your blonde won't respond when you flatter her, tell her what Tony told Cleopatra. If she fights when her clothes you are mussing, why are clothes much ado about nothing? Brush up your Shakespeare, and they'll all cow, cow. Brush up your Shakespeare, start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare, and the women you will wow. With the wife of the British ambassador, try a crack of the Troilus and Cressida. If she says she won't buy it or tie it, make her tie it, what's more as you like it. If she says your behavior is heinous, kick her right in the Coriolanus. Brush up your Shakespeare, and they'll all cow, cow. Brush up your Shakespeare, start voting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare, and the women you will wow. If you can't be a ham and do Hamlet, they will not give a damn or a damlet. Just recite an occasional sonnet, and your lap will have honey upon it. When your baby is pleading for pleasure, let us sample your measure for measure. Ooh. Brush up your Shakespeare, and they're all cow, cow. For soup, and, and they're all cow, cow. If they can, and they're all cow, cow. Brush up your Shakespeare, start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare, and the women you will wow. Better mention the merchant of Venice, when her sweet pound of flesh you would menace. If her virtue at first she defends well, just remind her that all's well that ends well. And if still she won't give you a bonus, you know what Venus got from Adonis. Whoa! Brush up your Shakespeare, and they're all cow, cow. Thinks now, and they're all cow, cow. I thought they're all cow, cow. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare, and the women you will wow. If your girl is a Washington Heights dream, treat the kid to a Midsummer's Night's Dream. If she then wants it all by herself, night, let her rest every eleventh and twelfth night. If because of your heat she gets huffy, simply play on and lay on McDuffie. Brush up your Shakespeare. And they'll all cow, cow, forsooth. And they'll all cow, cow, think style. And they'll all cow, cow, we try. And they'll all 